Part five, chapter six of the Manxman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Manxman by Sir Hall Cain. Part five, chapter six. They set sail early in the afternoon and ran down the coast under a fair breeze that made the canvas play until the sea hissed. The day was wet and cheerless. A thick mist enshrouded the land, and going by Laxey they could just descry the top arc of the great wheel like a dun-coloured ghost of a rainbow in a grey sky. As they came to Douglas the mist was lifting, but the rain was coming down in a soaking drizzle. A band was playing dance tunes on the iron pier, which shot like a serpent's tongue out of the mouth of the bay. The steamer from England was coming round the head, and her seasick passengers were dense as a crowd on her forward deck, the men with print handkerchiefs tied over their caps, the women with their skirts over their drooping feathers. A harp and a violin were scraping lively airs amidships. The town was like a cock with his tail down, crowing furiously in the wet. When they came to Port St. Mary, the mist had risen and the rain was gone, but the fishing town looked black and sullen under a lowering cloud. The tide was down, and many boats lay on the beach and in the shallow water within the rocks. Pete was put ashore. His nicky went round the calf to the herring ground beyond the shoulder. A number of fishermen were waiting for him on the quay, with heavy looks and hands deep in their trousers' pockets. "'No need for much preaching at all,' said Pete, pointing to the boats lying aground. "'There you are, boys, fifty of you at least, with no room to warp for the rocks.' yet they're for taxing you for dues for a harbour. "'Go ahead, Captain,' said one of the fishermen. "'There's five hundred men here to back you up through thick and thin.' Pete posted his brown paper parcel as stealthily as he had posted his letter, and left Port St. Mary the same night for Douglas. The roads were thick with coaches, choked full with pleasure-seekers from Port Erin. These cheerful souls were still wearing the clothes which had been drenched through in the morning, their boots were damp and cold. They were chill with the night air, but they did not repine. They sang and laughed and ate oranges, drew up frequently at wayside houses, and handed round bottles of beer with the corks drawn. In their own way they were bright and cheerful company. Sometimes hold the fort, sung in a break going ahead, mingled with Molly and I and the baby from lusty throats coming behind. Battling through Castle Town, they shouted wild chaff at the redcoats lounging by the castle, and when the darkness fell they dropped asleep, the men usually on the women's shoulders, and then the horses' hoofs were heard splashing along the muddy road, and every rider cracked his whip over a chorus of stertorous snores. Douglas was ablaze with light as they dipped down to it from the dark country. Long, sinuous tails of light where the busy streets were running in and out, this way and that, and belching into the wide squares and market-places like the race of a curragh fire. The sleepers awoke and shook themselves. "'Going to the castle tonight?' said one. "'What do you think?' said another, and they all laughed at the foolish question. "'I'll sleep here,' thought Pete. "'I've not searched Douglas yet.' The driver found him a bed at his mother's house. It was a lodging-house in Church Street, overlooking the churchyard. Finding himself so near to Athol Street, Pete thought he would look at the outside of Philip's chambers. He lit on the house easily, though the street was dark. It was one of a line of houses having brass plates, each with its name, and always the word advocate. 
Philip's house bore one plate only, a small one, with the name hardly legible in the uncertain light. It ran, The Deemster Christian. Having spelt out this inscription, Pete crept away. That was the last house in the island at which he wished to call. He was almost afraid of being seen in the same town. Philip might think he was in Douglas to look for Kate. Pete rambled through the narrow thoroughfares of Post Office Place, Haywood Lane and Fancy Street, until he came to the seafront. It was now full tide of busy night, and the holiday town seemed to be given over to enjoyment. The steps of the terraces were thronged. Itinerant photographers pitched their cameras on the curbstones. Every open window had its dark heads with the light behind. Pianos were clashing in houses, harps were twanging in the street, tinkling tramcars, like toast racks, were sweeping the curve of the bay. There was a steady flow of people on the pavement, and from water's edge to cliff-top, three parts round like a horse's shoe, the town flashed and fizzled and sparkled, and blazed under its thousand lights with the splendour of a forest fire. Pete called to mind the blinking and groping of the dear old half-lit town to the north. He remembered the dark village at the foot of the lonely hills, with its trout stream burrowing under the low bridge, and he thought, she may have tired of it all, poor thing. He looked at every woman's face as she went by him, hungering for one glimpse of a face he feared to see. He did not see it, and he wandered like a lost soul through the little gay town until he drifted with the wave that flowed around the bay into the place that was known as the castle. It was a dancing palace in a garden, built in the manner of a conservatory, with the ground level for those who came to dance, and the galleries for such as came to see. Seated by the front rail of the gallery, Pete peered down into the faces below. Three thousand young men and young women were dancing, the men in flannels and coloured scarves, the women in light muslins and straw hats. Sometimes the white lights in the glass roof were coloured with red and blue and yellow. The low buzz of the dancers' feet, the clang and clash of the brass instruments, the boom of the big drum, the quake of the glass house itself, and the low rumble of the hollow floor beneath. It was like a battlefield set to music. She may have tired, poor thing. God knows she may, thought Pete. His eyes were growing hazy and his head dizzy when he became conscious of a waft of perfume behind him, and a soft voice saying at his ear, Were you looking for anybody then? He turned with a start and looked at the speaker. It was a young girl with a pretty face, thick with powder. He could not be angry with the little thing. She was so young, and she was smiling. Yes, he said, I was looking for somebody. And then he tried to shake her off. Is it Maudie, you mean, dear? Are you the young man from Dublin? Lave me, my girl, lave me, said Pete, patting her hand and twisting about. The girl looked at him with a sort of pity, and then close at his neck she said, A fine boy like you shouldn't be going fretting his heart about the best girl that's in. He looked at the pretty face again and the little knowing airs began to break down. You're a Manx girl, aren't you? The smile vanished like a flash. How do you know that? My tongue doesn't tell you, does it? And the little thing was ashamed. Pete took the tight-gloved fingers in his big palm. So you're my little countrywoman, then, he said. How old are you? The painted lips began to tremble. Sixteen for harvest, she answered. My God, exclaimed Pete. The darkened eyelids blinked. She was beginning to cry. It wasn't my fault. He was a visitor with my mother at Ballor, and he left me to it. 
Pete took a sovereign out of his pocket and shut it in the girl's hand. "'Go home tonight, my dear,' he whispered, and then he clambered out of the place. "'Not there,' cried Pete in his heart. "'Not there. I swear to God she is not there.' That ended his search. He resolved to go home the same night, and he went back to his lodgings to pay his bill. Turning out of Athol Street, Pete was almost overrun by a splendid equipage, with two men in buff on the box seat, and one man behind. "'The governor's carriage,' said somebody. At the next moment it drew up at Philip's door, its occupant alighted, and then it swung about and moved away. "'It was the young deemster,' said a girl to her companion, as she went skipping past. Pete had seen the tall, dark figure, bent and feeble, as it walked heavily up the steps. "'Truth enough,' he thought. "'There's nothing got in this world without paying the price of it.' It was three in the morning when Pete reached Ramsey. Elm Cottage was dark and silent. He had to knock again and again before awakening Nancy. Now if this had been Kate, he thought, and a new fear took hold of him. His poor darling, his wandering lamb, could she have knocked twice? Where was she tonight? He had been picturing her in happiness and plenty. Was she in poverty and distress? All the world was sleeping. Was she asleep? His hope was slipping away. His great faith was breaking down. Lord, do not forsake me. Master, strengthen me. My poor lost love, where is she? What is she? Shall I see her face again? Something cold touched his hand. It was the dog. Without a bark, he had put his nose into Pete's palm. What, Dempster man? Dempster? The bat's ears were cocked. Pete felt them. The scud of a tail was wagged, and Pete got comfort from the battered old friend that had tramped the world at his heels. Nancy unchained the door, opened it an inch, held a candle over her head and peered out. My goodness, is it the man himself? However did you come home? By John the Flayer's pony, said Pete, and he laughed and made light of his night-long walk. But next morning, when Nancy came downstairs with the child, Pete was busy with a screwdriver taking the chain off the door. Terrible old-fashioned, these chains. Must be moving with the times, you know. Then what are you putting in its place, said Nancy. You'll see, you'll see, said Pete. At seven that night, Pete was smoking over the gate when Kelly the thief came up with a brown paper parcel. Parcel for you, Mr. Quilliam, said the postman, with the air of a man who knew something he should not know. Pete blinked and looked bewildered. You don't say, he said. Well, if that's your name, began the postman, holding the address for Pete to read. Pete gave it a searching look. Captain Peter Quilliam, that's it, certainly. Elm Cottage. Yes, it must be right, he said, taking the parcel gingerly. Then with a prolonged, ooh, shutting his eyes and nodding his head. I know, a bit of a present from the mother to the little one. Wonderful thoughtful a woman is about a baby when she's a mother, Mr. Kelly. The postman giggled, threw his finger seaward over one shoulder, and said, Why aren't you writing back to her, then? "'What's that?' said Pete sharply, making the parcel creak. "'Why aren't you writing to tell her how the little one is, I'm saying?' Pete looked at the postman as if the idea had dropped from heaven. "'I must have a head as thick as a mooring-post, Mr. Kelly. "'Do you know I never once thought of it? "'I'm like Goliath when he got little David Stone at his forehead. "'Such a thing never entered my head before.' "'Do it for all, Mr. Quilliam,' said the postman, moving off. "'I will, I will,' said Pete.' and then he turned into the house. "'Scissors, Nancy,' he shouted, throwing the parcel on the table. 
My sakes, a parcel, cried Nancy. Aisy to tell where it comes from, too. See that knot, woman? said Pete, with a knowing wink. What in the world is it, Pete? said Nancy. I wonder, said Pete. Paper's enough round it, anyway. A letter? We'll look at that after, he said loftily, and then out came the scarlet hood. Gosh, bless me, what's this thing at all? And he held it up by the crown. Nancy made a cry of alarm, took the hood out of his hand, and scolded him roundly. These men, they're fit to spoil an angel's wings. Then she whipped up the baby out of the cradle, tried the hood on the little round head, and shouted with delight. Now I was thinking of that, do you know, she said. I was, yes, I was. Believe me or not, I was. Currie will be sending something for the little one the next time she writes, I was thinking. And behold ye, here it is. Something spakes to us, Nancy, said Pete. Deed it does, though. The child gurgled and purred, and for all her fine headgear she was absorbed in her bare toes. And there's yourself, Pete, going to Peel and to Douglas, and I don't know where, and you've never once thought of the little one, and knowing we were for shortening her, too. Pete cast down his head and looked ashamed. Well, no, of course, I never have. That's truth enough, he faltered. End of part five, chapter six.